Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Forum. Nature Biotechnologies podcast, where we speak with leading researchers about their areas of interest in recent papers, either in our journal or elsewhere. I'm Michael Francisco, a senior editor at the journal. Today, on episode 17, we're talking about xenotransplantation, which is the transplantation, implantation, or infusion of cells, tissues, or organs for a non-human animal source into a human recipient. Our host is Barbara Chiffey, Chief Editor of Nature Biotechnology. And our guests are Megan Sykes, Director of the Center of Translational Immunology at Columbia University, and Jamie Locke, Surgeon and Director of the Division of Transplantation at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Barbara, why is xenotransplantation worth discussing now? There's been a lot of advances reported in the news this year, right? Yeah, thanks, Michael. I wanted to discuss this topic now because, as you said, in 2021 and 2022, we saw the first human clinical trials that transplanted genetically engineered kidneys into two separate patients and one xenal heart transplant. We know that the demand for human organ replacement is likely to grow substantially over time, and this naturally will lead scientists to think about what options are possible beyond human-to-human transplantation. There are many benefits to using organs from other animals, such as pigs, which I'll discuss here in this podcast, although scientists are still working on addressing the limitations. That's great. Tell me about your guests, Megan Sykes and Jamie Locke. Yeah, I was really excited to have these two leaders in the field on this episode. Dr. Jamie Locke, as you said, is a transplant surgeon from the University of Alabama in Birmingham, and she was personally involved in the transplantation of one of the pig kidneys into a brain-dead human host. And Dr. Megan Sykes is an immunologist by training and has really led this field looking at xenograft immune tolerance in humans. And so this was a really fun conversation because I could hear the two different perspectives on the field of xenotransplantation, Megan's research side and Jamie's more clinical side. Thanks, Barbara. Okay, let's get into it. Here is episode 17 of Nature Biotechnology Forum. Hi, 
and welcome back to the Forum Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Jamie Locke and Megan Sykes about recent advances in human xenotransplantation. Xenotransplantation is a transplantation of cells, tissues, or organs into, from one species to another. So here we're going to focus on human xenotransplantation, specifically the clinical cases that have used pigs as hosts for human transplants of genetically modified kidneys and heart. You may have heard about these cases in the news over the last two years. Xenotransplantation is, of course, different than what we typically think about when we hear the term organs transplant, as traditionally these transplants are between a human donor and another human recipient. But there are many potential benefits to using animal hosts, which I'm sure we will discuss here. So Jamie and Megan, thank you so much for being here today to talk about your groundbreaking work in this field. Perhaps to start, we could talk briefly about the goals of xenotransplantation in humans and how you both got interested in this field. Well, I'll start out by saying the goal of xenotransplantation is to overcome the shortage, the severe shortage of organs for transplantation. Uh, right now, there are over 115,000 people in the United States waiting for an organ transplant, and many of them will never be transplanted. People die every day waiting for a transplant, um, you know, a heart, a lung transplant, liver transplant, or even a kidney transplant. Um, people cannot be maintained forever on, on dialysis. And so um, there's a real need out there. Yeah, I would just uh, echo what Dr. Sykes said. I, I think it's absolutely organ shortage, organ shortage, organ shortage. But I would also say, um, you know, I've spent much of my career actually studying health disparities and trying to promote health equity. And without question, we see massive health disparities uh, in end-stage disease, particularly end-stage kidney disease. And I really see xenotransplantation as an opportunity to actually help mitigate some of those disparities. Um, and actually, by solving the organ shortage, actually solving a health disparity and actually creating health equity. So that's been a really big motivation. And I would add to that, that if xenotransplantation uh, gets to the point of being routine, it has a number of huge advantages over the typical allogeneic or human transplant uh, in the sense that we could have organs ready to give to people when the time is optimal for the person rather than the person having to wait for a deceased donor that may come at any time. And obviously that waiting period can be associated with loss of function of other organs as a result of the organ failure and, you know, other morbidities. And so uh, being able to do organ transplants on a purely elective basis when the patient is most ready and everything is ready uh, would really be great. Yeah, absolutely. And were you both always interested in this field or how, how did this become your, your focus? Well, I've been working on this field for over 30 years, actually. Um, I've been working on transplantation immunology and particularly interested in inducing immune tolerance to organ grafts, uh, both allogeneic and xenogeneic organ grafts. Uh, so that's been a, a big part of my work over the last 30 years, including xenotransplantation. Yeah, I would say I have a slightly different uh, approach in that I'm relatively new, new to the field. Um, really sort of got involved in xenotransplantation just a few years ago, back in 2019, when I was approached and asked to 
think about this really from a clinician's perspective um, and as an active transplanting surgeon, sort of what was it going to take from my perspective to help move this to the clinic? Um, and that's really how I've gotten involved and in, in really just trying to help make this a reality uh, for our patients uh, and take the work that folks like uh, Dr. Sykes have done over the years and help translate that so that we can that we can save more lives. But relative newcomer. Yeah, so I think this is a great segue into talking just quickly about these clinical cases that have um, been done in the last two years where the surgeons have transplanted both xeno hearts and xeno kidneys into brain-dead humans. So what were the biggest hurdles that had to be overcome here, both, you, Megan, from your, your research perspective and also, Jamie, from the surgical perspective? Are they related to human immune response, or, or what do you, you feel like are the biggest hurdles? Well, I think the clinical and regulatory hurdles and having to deal with, um, you know, the commitment of the patient's family, and it's a huge commitment for them, um, are all the big hurdles that uh, Jamie has dealt with. From the perspective of an immunologist, I mean, I have to say that I, when I initially heard about this idea, I thought, what are we really going to learn from that? Because you can't do it for very long, and you know there's not time for much of an immune response. But in fact, um, as I thought more about it, I realized there's a lot we could learn because we really don't have any baseline data on how much uh, antibody against the donor pig would be acceptable for avoiding immediate rejection of of a, of a pig kidney, or if we use genetically modified pigs, how does that affect the amount of antibody in the patient that would be allowable without causing immediate rejection? So there are many, many questions like that that actually can be addressed. Yeah, and thanks for that. I I would just add, I think, you know, from my perspective, one of the things that was really critical is understanding compatibility with regard to tissue. Um, making sure that, to, to Dr. Sykes' point, how much antibody is too much, that you're going to end up with a hyperacute rejection in a human, which obviously is problematic. In human allotransplantation, we have standards of care and optimal practices with regard to that. We require all of this to be done prior to the transplant with the goal to avoid hyperacute rejection. So I think that's something that this model has helped us with. It also, I think, has given us an opportunity to test um, this genetic engineering, if you will, in the context of more standard immunosuppression that we commonly use in human-to-human allo, so that we're getting things a little bit more similar, so that really the only difference, hopefully, will be the donor source. There's still a lot of debate around what the optimal immunosuppression regimen might be, but I think um, this model gives us the opportunity to test those things. And then importantly, I think there's still a lot of questions or concerns from regulators in particular about any sort of disease transmission or chimerism. And those are things that I think this model is really uh, nice uh, for testing and it allows you to have access to distant tissues since it is a decedent model that obviously you couldn't do in a living person. Um, And so I think we've been able to garner a lot of information. Um, And so I'm hopeful that the things that we have studied and come to understand are gonna help us uh, move this uh, safely into living people. So when you're, you're thinking about, you know, transplanting 
various organs. You know, we've you've done kidney and heart. Do you, are the responses similar to different organs, or is this something you're considering as you think about expanding the potential of of xenotransplants? Well, I, I think that's one of the things that we need to learn from the kinds of studies we've just been talking about. Um, I think responses to different organs uh, are going to be different. Um, so many of the considerations uh, from studies in non-human primates are quite different. Um, and with these kinds of studies in decedents, we will get more of a handle on, on what the different considerations are for different organs. For example, I think that the types of genetic modifications of the pig that are needed and optimal may be different for different organs. So, and also the physiology of each organ, of course, is, is specific to that organ and whether there are physiologic incompatibilities between the pig and the human will be a very specific question to answer with each organ. Yeah, and, and building on that, can you just speak a bit about why uh, we're currently using pigs as hosts for these organs instead of, say, non-human primates? Well, there were some early studies done with non-human primate uh, donors uh, in the 80s and 90s, and those studies helped to highlight some of the challenges and reasons not to use such animals. First of all, non-human primates uh, are not easy to breed in captivity, and they don't breed, they don't produce litters of lots of animals, and it takes a long time to um, produce offspring. Whereas pigs um, breed readily in captivity, they have large litters, and they have relatively short gestational times and, and cycles. So um, the pig is very advantageous for, from a breeding standpoint. But secondly, I think ethically, um, more people would have trouble using large numbers of non-human primates for transplantation than pigs because many people feel quite comfortable using pigs for food. And then the third issue is that we did learn from those previous studies that because of the closer compatibility between uh, non-human primates and humans versus pigs and humans, uh, the potential for viruses that infect the non-human primates to infect humans is greater than it is in the pig-to-human combination. And in fact, that kind of viral spread between primate species has been seen. Uh, HIV is one example of that. It came from an African green monkey originally. So um, that became a major limiting concern. And the breeding of pigs, of course, make them um, amenable to genetic modification and then breeding once those modifications have been made. So, and, and you can actually inbreed pigs. The ones that we use uh, at Columbia University are a special herd of pigs that are smaller than regular pigs. They're called miniature pigs. And they're closer in size to humans. And they're also inbred so that that leads to a lot more uniformity in the animals that you get, um, that you generate for transplantation. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And just um, when we're talking about matching, you know, human organ donors, 
you know, we're considering things like size and age. Um, do you have to think about this when you're matching a Xeno organ to a human recipient? In our experimental work, we have to consider a lot uh, because the recipient animals that we use are much smaller than humans. And so we have to use very young pigs as the organ source. Um, Dr. Locke can talk more about uh, the selection process in the, in the pig to human combination at this point. Yeah, it, it does matter. Um, it matters um, whether you're doing a heart or a kidney transplant. Um, you need the, the organ to be appropriately sort of, in this case, adult human size, because that's currently who we're transplanting. Um, and so we've got growth charts. So we have a good sense, for example, when the pigs are of sufficient weight and age such that the pig kidney approximates, approximates the size of a human kidney, both in width and length, but also in weight. Um, with the idea that it should be able to provide sufficient enough function when it's that size. If you use them smaller, so for example, we do use in human-to-human aloe, we will use kidneys from pediatric deceased donors, um, but when they're very small, we transplant them in what's called in block, where you end up putting in both of them. Um, so we have to know so that we make sure that we have enough renal mass um, to be able to sustain uh, the adult size, typical adult-sized human. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe we could switch and talk a little bit about, you know, we're talking about genetically modified organs here and modified pigs. Maybe we should discuss um, what exactly are these modifications that we're, we're doing to make these, you know, transplants successful? Well, there are a number of them. Um, the one that really provided a breakthrough in the experimental xenotransplantation field and that has been critical for translating into human uh, studies, had, was the knockout of the alpha-1,3-gal transferase gene that encodes an enzyme that produces a sugar molecule that decorates many, many different proteins and lipids in, in the pig. And the reason that's important is the pig is not unique in having that enzyme and making that sugar. Uh, many species do, including microbes. And humans and old world primates lack that enzyme. Uh, it got uh, mutated somewhere uh, in our ancestors in, in old world primates. And uh, as a result of that, when we see these microbes in our gut or on our skin or whatever, our B cells see something foreign and produce antibodies. And that means that in all of our blood, we have what's called natural antibodies that recognize this alpha-gal, uh, that's what we call it for short, sugar. And if you put a pig organ into uh, a primate or a human, what happens is those natural antibodies will immediately bind to this sugar on the lining of the blood vessels, on the endothelial cells. And that leads to a whole cascade of events that results in uh, severe inflammation and blockage of the blood vessels so that the graft is rejected within minutes to hours, so a very dramatic process. So knocking out that gene from the pig was really, really important because now we don't have to worry about antibodies binding to that particular sugar. However, it turns out that 
um, we do have uh, antibodies that recognize lesser uh, targets that, that are still significant and can still cause a, a later form of rejection. And so several groups have knocked out the, ends, the genes for the enzymes that produce those additional sugars. On top of that, um, people have introduced human genes for what are called complement regulatory proteins that are proteins also expressed on blood vessels that help to regulate that cascade of events that I, I just mentioned that is initiated by antibodies. And then there are a variety of other anti-inflammatory proteins that help to prevent a cell from getting overly activated. And having those on the pig organ is thought to be maybe advantageous as well. So those are sort of the main categories. There are others that, that people are looking at as well. Yeah, I, I think that that's a great description. Um, I think the important piece, um, for, you know, from a practicing clinician standpoint is what does that actually do to our compatibility? So what, what does that look like? And certainly you saw um, improvement in compatibility between humans and the genetically edited pigs as the number of carbohydrate antigens knocked out increased. So when you move from knocking out just one versus three, um, you see enhanced compatibility. So that's about a third of the patients examined. Uh, have a negative uh, flow cross match with a pig that has three of the carbohydrate antigens knocked out that Dr. Sykes was just describing. And then others have gone on to show that with the insertion of some of these human transgenes, that has also further enhanced compatibility, although to a lesser extent, but it still improved it. Um, and so um, that's really, I think, where it's at. But to, to highlight what I said, because I think it brings up a point that Dr. Sykes made earlier, you know, at least with the genetically edited pig that we're working with, only about a third of people have a negative cross match. That means that there are still two thirds of people who will not be a good tissue match with this particular genetically edited pig. So all that to say that I think that we're going to probably need more than one. We may need different genetic edits for different organs. We may need different genetic edits for different people. Uh, so there's a lot of work left to do, but still really exciting progress that's been made thus far. At this point, I, I can't help but mention an alternative approach, which is one that we're exploring, um, which is to induce what I, what I mentioned earlier, immune tolerance to the pig. And what that means is that the immune system regards the donor as self. And it turns out that that applies to T lymphocytes, but also to B lymphocytes that make these antibodies. And we've learned that with one of our uh, methods of inducing tolerance that we call mixed chimerism, the B lymphocytes that would normally make the antibodies against the pig actually get tolerized so that they don't make the antibodies. So we like that approach because it means that you don't have to keep peeling away at the enzymes in the pig and perhaps revealing other new carbohydrates. Instead, you can just retrain the immune system. So that's what we're working on experimentally. Um, and ultimately, we hope to bring that into clinical practice. Wow, that's very exciting, too. So far, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the kidney and the heart. Uh, what organs do you see maybe being next? Or 
is there a need for next in the clinic? Well, um, go ahead, Jamie. No, I was just, I mean, and, and please interrupt me, Dr. Sykes, if I'm off base here. I'm, I'm approaching this entirely as a clinician. I think, you know, of the solid organs, the heart in many ways is the most straightforward um, because the heart is really asked to be a muscle, to be a pump. Um, it doesn't really have to do other things. When you start thinking about the other organs, like a kidney, it's got to deal with salt and water and clear things. Liver has to produce proteins and clotting factors. So you're kind of asking more of that graph uh, than to just contract as a muscle. So in, in my mind, I think, honestly, I think the one that we may see the most success with the earliest is the heart. In many ways, you kind of can can see that in that it was the first that was put into a living person recently um, at Maryland. Uh, but very curious to hear Dr. Sykes's opinion on that, but just thinking at it as a clinician, you know, the heart just really needs to be a pump, which I think makes the work of Dr. Sykes and others a bit easier when that's all you're asking of it. Well, I, I totally agree with you. I think that the, the heart is the simplest organ and is likely to move forward fairly soon. And uh, I think it's very exciting. The other organs like the liver, as Dr. Locke mentioned, is much more complex in the physiologic uh, functions that it performs. Um, the lung is also very complex immunologically. So we're hopefully gonna get there one day, but we're a ways away. But one other tissue I need to mention that I think is not far away and has already been tested in a few small clinical studies is what's called the islets of Langerhans. And those are the, the tissues that contain the beta cells that make insulin. And as a treatment for diabetes, um, I think uh, the use of the pig as a source is very potentially exciting. The challenge there is that people who have diabetes, of course, can take insulin uh, to keep them alive. Um, it's not ideal, but it, we have that very effective therapy. So to tell somebody with diabetes, now you are going to get an islet transplant and take immunosuppressive drugs for the rest of your life uh, is, is challenging. And it's so far really been only a very special, small subset of patients who have been considered eligible for even allogeneic islet transplants. However, this is another reason why we're excited about tolerance induction, because if you could induce tolerance, you wouldn't need to have that lifelong immunosuppression. And if you could induce tolerance to islets, you would, in very short order, not have enough islets for transplantation. They're already fairly hard to come by. So having the pig as a source of those islets in conjunction with tolerance regimen, I think is very exciting. And I think um, even without tolerance, another approach that people are studying quite intensely is to uh, sequester those islets away to encapsulate them. And that's how some of the, the clinical trials of, of pig islet transplantation have been done. Um, so far it hasn't really protected them completely from the immune system, but that's a very interesting approach as well. Yes, absolutely. So my next question, I'm really interested in, you know, your two different takes on this, but what remaining issue is the most pressing? 
Well, I think, you know, for, for me, um, I'm an abdominal transplant surgeon, so I primarily focus in the abdomen. So my focus are liver, kidneys, pancreas, things like that. Um, the kidney being kind of the furthest along. I think for me, one of the big remaining questions is whether this is going to be bridge therapy or truly destination therapy for the patients. I think the work that uh, people like Dr. Sykes have done gives me great comfort in terms of knowing that it can provide life-sustaining function to a non-human primate. You know, when you remove their native kidneys, you put in the xenograft, it makes urine, it clears, it does what it's supposed to do. The question is how long and, and what will that look like in a human? Will this be a bridge where they get some relief from dialysis or can say dialysis free, having never touched dialysis for a period of time while they're awaiting a human aloe transplant? Or is this something where we could really sort of see longevity out to 30 years? We know the lifespan of a pig is 30 years outside the food chain. So is it possible that these organs could last that long? I think those are going to be really challenging questions to answer without moving that into living persons. And so to me, that's one of the questions, you know, as the clinician with um, who sees, we see 15 new evaluations every day of the week at UAB. It's 15 people who need a kidney transplant. Um, and so we know that most of those are never going to even get an offer for a transplant, right? So we want to know, we want to know the answer. We want to be able to have this source. So I don't know, Dr. Sykes, what do you think? Um, well, I, you know, I'm an optimist in the long term. I, I think we will be able to make this destination therapy, but my, what I feel is most pressing really is in the short term. That is how do we get clinical trials initiated uh, in you know a reasonably short period of time and that entails uh, getting regulatory approval uh, having pigs in a sufficiently uh, biosecure condition and facility that that, it, that it's safe to do that and keeping industry interested, keeping it funded, because it's going to start slowly and it's not going to be profitable in the short term. How do we keep up that commitment to fund both the research and the clinical studies that are needed to move this forward so that it can really meet its potential? Because I think the potential is just incredible. But I've been in this field long enough to be worried about how enthusiasm waxes and wanes and how funding waxes and wanes. That's a fair point. Although I'm optimistic about this field as well, um, but I have not been here for 30 years. So anyway, I think that's that's a great place to end. Uh, you know, I, your, both of your research in this space has been really interesting to watch and I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes in the next, you know, five, ten years in this space and uh, see how we can progress. So thank you, Megan and Jamie, for this interesting conversation. Okay, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. That was episode 17 of Nature Biotechnology Forum. Thanks to our guests, Megan Sykes and Jamie Locke. 
You can listen to other episodes of this and our other podcasts by searching Nature Biotechnology wherever you find and listen to podcasts. Please check out our 10-part series, Hope Lies in Dreams, about the biotech pioneer Stan Crook and the development of Anasense technology that led to a cure for a deadly disease called spinal muscular atrophy. If you'd like to comment, please reach out to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook at Nat Biotechnol and Twitter at Nature Biotech. That's all for now. Until next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.